welcome back to Jonah. This is Jonah 3, 1 through 4, part 1. So let's open in prayer. Father, we just thank you for bringing us here today. And we just ask you to fill us with your spirit and what we know not teach us and what we have not give us and what we are not make us for Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, guys, like normal, I've got some um, um, words to a song. Wherever he leads, I'll go. And um, But first, I want to, before we do that, I want to read some scripture because I believe that it'll kind of set the tone for our, for our talk today. This is what the Lord Almighty says, the God of Israel. Go ahead, he says, add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. For when I brought you out of Egypt, when I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in all the ways I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backwards and not forwards. Jeremiah 7, 21-24 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be white like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Isaiah 1, 18-20 Now he who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God because of the service by which You have proved yourselves men. will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your profession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 2 Corinthians 9, 10-15. Okay, our song is for today is Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. And uh, I'm just going to read you some of the lyrics. Take up your cross and follow me. I heard my master say, I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. 
He drew me closer to his side. I sought his will to know, and in that will I now abide. Wherever he leads, I'll go. My heart, my life, my all I bring to Christ who loves me so. He is my master, Lord, and King. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. God is not after our slavish obedience. Rather, his desire is for his children to have obedience that is motivated out of love for him and for trust in him. All things come from the Lord. Uh, I wanted to read you an article by Chris Tigreen, which says, Why obedience isn't the point. If a person's heart sinks with God's in all of its loves, passions, dreams, and desires, actions take care of themselves. Do our hearts sink with God's? No one needs to tell you how to live your heart if your heart is beating with God's. But this is by no means a given in contemporary Christianity or even in matters of biblical translation. Take, for example, the passage in John where Jesus tells his followers that if they love him, they will keep his commandments. To me, it's a warm and inviting passage full of feeling and an invitation to develop an intimate bond with Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit. But there's another colder way to read it. If you love me, keep my commands, says several, general, several translations of John 14, 15. It is written as an imperative, as though Jesus were saying, prove your love by doing what I say. More literal, literal translations, like the ESV and NAS, recognize that this isn't an imperative, a command. It's a statement of fact. If you love me, you will obey my commands. In other words, focus on your love and obedience will actually come naturally. Love will produce in you the right actions. That makes a lot more sense to me, especially in light of Jesus' other words about his burden being light and his emphasis on abiding in his love. It isn't a matter of towing the line. It's a matter of being transforming our hearts that expresses the transformation externally. Our outward lives will always grow in the direction of our inward lives, to be sure. Another thing I would like to read is Do Not Love the World or Anything in the World. And this is a uh, by Richard Baxter and Voices from the Past, which is a, a, a wonderful uh, devotional book of the, of the Puritans. And uh, in it, Baxter writes, We need to guard our lives against the love of riches and worldly cares. All love for earthly goods, however, is not a sin. Their sweetness is a drop of his love, and they have the goodness imprinted on them. They kindle our love for him as love tokens from our dearest friend. Loving them is a duty, not a sin. Earthly blessings are the means of sustaining our bodies and preserving our life and health as we do God the service we owe him in the world on our journey to heaven. We love them as remote helpers to our salvation. Riches may also enable us to relieve our needy brethren, so we may, may love and be thankful for them. The sinful love of riches is when they are loved, desired, and sought after to satisfy the flesh more than the love of God. Or when they lift us up our pride that we may shine among men and live at a high rate of a splendor. 
This is a great sin because it is a sin of deliberation and not just a sudden passion. It becomes idolatry by setting up a love for something which, which love is due solely to God. It shows a contempt for heaven, preferring the world to heavenly glory. It perverts the direction of a man's life to the wrong ends. There is no cure for an earthly mind but by presenting far greater matters to the mind. If a man were given the sight of heaven and hell, he would consider the world less than he did before. If he heard the joyful praises of the saints or woeful lamentation of the damned, but one hour he would seek after greater goals than scraping together a heap of wealth. Look to heaven, man. There is home, your home, and your hope. O blinded mortals that, that love to dwell on the earth like worms, you are immortal souls made for God himself to admire him, love him, serve him, and enjoy him forever. O peg of God, a heavenly light and mind to look often into heaven and worldliness will vanish away in your shame. Another um, thing that I thought would really be a great start to reading that to uh, our uh, our start of Jonah 3, chapter 3, is Spurgeon, which he, I love his morning and evenings. And this one he wrote, it just really, to me, cinched it. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is the work of, the, of God. It is he alone who rouses the soul, dead in transgressions and sins. And it is he also who maintains the soul in its spiritual life. He is both Alpha and Omega. Salvation is of the Lord. If I am prayerful, God makes me prayerful. If I have graces, they are God's gift to me. If I hold on in a consistent life, it is because he upholds me with his hand. I do nothing whatever towards my own preservation, except when God himself first does it in me. Whatever I have, all my goodness is of the Lord alone. When I sin, that is my own doing. But when I act rightly, that is of God wholly and completely. If I have repulsed a spiritual enemy, the Lord's strength nerved my arm. Do I live a consecrated life before others? Do we? Do we live a consecrated life before others? It is not I, but Christ who lives in me. Am I sanctified? I didn't purify myself. God's Holy Spirit sanctifies me. Am I weaned from the world? I am weaned by God's chastisement sanctified to my good. Do I grow in knowledge? The great instructor teaches me. All my jewels were fashioned by heavenly art. I find in God all that I want, but I find in myself nothing but sin and misery. He alone is my rock and my salvation. Do I feed on the word? That word wouldn't be food for me unless the Lord made it food for my soul and helped me to feed upon it. Do I live on the manna which comes down from heaven? What is the manna but Jesus Christ himself incarnate, whose body and whose blood I eat and drink? Am I continually receiving fresh increase of strength? Where does my might come from? My help comes from heaven's hills. Without Jesus, I can do nothing as a branch cannot bring forth fruit except it abide in the vine. No more can I expect I abide except I abide in him. What Jonah learned in the great deep, let me learn this morning in my closet. Salvation, salvation is of the Lord. 
Jonah 3, 1 through 4 says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. What a great message, right? Jonah 3, 1 through 4. Our God is a God of second chances and third and fourth and fifth. Is he not? Quite frankly, he is a God of chances giving way to chances, giving way to chances, giving way to chances. Praise him. We discover in our verses for today the prophet Jonah with a fresh new start. He's regurgitated onto dry land from a great fish that was surely as happy to get rid of him as Jonah was to have been gotten rid of. God had divinely provided deliverance from certain death for Jonah through this unusual means of the belly of a big fish. Our God is not only patient with us, but also very creative in his actions toward us. He knows how to get our attention, amen, to say the very least. Regarding second chances, as our protagonist, Jonah, had uh, been given, I am also reminded of the story of Samson and Judges. He was a Nazarite from birth by God's commission. A Nazarite vow meant one was set apart by God for his works and his glory for a period of time. And a man or woman could take the Nazarite vow on their own. But Samson, however, was made a Nazarite by God. He was to be a lifer, so to speak. Samuel was another, as was perhaps John the Baptist and Paul. The Nazarite vow was a very serious business in God's eyes. It was to be no flippant vow, meaning if one took it, they better do what it said. Actually, all vows we make to the Lord, he takes very seriously. A vow is binding. Numbers 30, 1 through 2 states, Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, This is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he has said. Numbers 31 through 2. We are also told from Scripture what a Nazarite vow consisted of in Numbers 6, 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation to the Lord as a Nazarite, he must abstain from wine and other fermented drinks and must not drink vinegar made from wine or from other fermented drink. He must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins as long as he is a Nazarite. He must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. During the entire period of his vow of separation, no razor may be used on his head. He must be holy until the period 
of his separation to the Lord is over. He must let the hair of his head grow long. Throughout the period of his separation to the Lord, he must not go near a dead body, even if it's his own father or mother or brother or sister does. He must not make himself ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of his separation to God is on his head. Throughout the period of his separation, he is consecrated to the Lord. Number six, one through eight. It was serious business. Samson was fully aware of all of this, yet he allowed his fleshly appetite toward women to cause him to toy around with God's commands, treating it flippantly. God has set him apart for the important job to begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And this was no small thing in God's eyes. Most of us know the story. His fetish for women overruled his love for God and his desire to follow God's ways. Be careful of your Achilles heel, as they are like, like Humpty Dumpty can cause a great fall. <laughs> Delilah, darling Delilah had captured Samson's attention and by a series of events persuaded him to tell her the secret of his great strength, of which she immediately divulged to the Philistines. She lulls him to sleep and shaves off his hair and, and his strength left him. The Philistines captured him, they gouged out his eyes, and used him as a source of their entertainment. Yet, Scripture states, his hair began to grow. And after it had been shaved, it was growing again. We pick up the story when God gives Samson a second chance. We find it recorded in Judges 16, 23-30. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God, saying, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who has laid waste our land and multiplied are slain. While they were high in spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple, so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women and all the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about mm, 3,000 men and women. And they were all watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Oh, sovereign Lord, remember me. Please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow, get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. 
bracing himself against his, them, his right hand on the one and his left on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might, and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. Judges 16, 23 through 30. Such a sad ending because of his own poor choices when it could have been such a delightful one. That's what sin does. It wrecks havoc in both the life of the one who sins and in their spheres of influence as well. It always brings death with it. Now back to our story. Most assuredly, Jonah would have been seen by others arriving in such high fashion when he emerged covered in the vomit of the fish's previous night's dinner. Certainly, others were around when the great fish disgorged him onto dry land. He didn't come quietly. The story also must have spread like wildfire and perhaps even preceded Jonah to Nineveh. What a story it was. That could help explain the reception the city gave him. More than likely, Jonah had been bleached by the fish's gastric juices, perhaps making him look mm, so peculiar that nobody could doubt who he was and what had happened to him. Jesus even stated in Matthew 12, 38-41, that Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, and this may have included the way he looked as well. In Matthew 12, 38-41, Jesus tells us, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to, said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now one greater than Jonah is here Matthew 12 38 through 41 the life of Jonah cannot be written without God take God out of the prophets history and there is no history to write Charles Spurgeon stated we don't know where the great fish deposited Jonah, but we do know that wherever Jonah was, the Lord was there. The Lord is always there. Remember, God is more concerned about his workers than their work. For if the workers are what they ought to be, the work will be what it ought to be. Throughout Jonah's time of rebellion, God was displeased with his servant, but he never once deserted him. <laughs> like the prodigal's father, God was just waiting for Jonah to come home and orchestrating all of his circumstances to get him to look up again. It was God who controlled the storm, prepared the great fish, 
and rescued Jonah from the deep. It was all God. God's promise to us in Hebrews 13.5 states, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. And again, in Joshua 1, 5, it states, No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Joshua 1, 5. Thank Praise Jesus. God tells us through the pen of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 1 through 5. But now this is what the Lord says. He created you, O Jacob. He formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, Cush and Seba in your steed. Since you are precious, and honored in my sight. And because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you, Isaiah 43, 1 through 5. We have a with us God. Now we discover in our passage for today, God's mercifully speaking to Jonah a second time. He has not given up on his prophet after the way Jonah had stubbornly refused to obey God's voice. It is a marvel that the Lord spoke to him at all. Amen. Jonah had turned his back on God's word. So the Lord had been forced to speak to him through the thunder and the rain and the stormy sea. Now that Jonah had confessed his sins and turn back to the Lord, he could once again speak to him through his word. Scripture states about Scripture in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Hebrews 4, 12. When it comes to hearing from God, I firmly believe the Bible 
is our source and authority. God's word is like a megaphone to his people. Throughout scripture, God speaks through kings and queens, princesses and prophets, poets and pilgrims. He speaks through weather patterns, barnyard animals, and even the stars in the sky. God is not only creative, but he is persistent in getting our attention and communicating with us. That's from The Sacred Echo by Margaret Feinberg. Our claim is that God has revealed himself by speaking, that his divine or his God-breathed speech has been written down and preserved in Scripture. And that Scripture is, in fact, God's Word, written, which, therefore, is true and reliable and has divine authority over men, John Stott writes. Just think about what God was aiming to accomplish in the Bible. (laughs) He purposed to convey the truth of redemption, the gospel, in ways that would be understood and believed by people of diverse cultures, speaking thousands of different languages over thousands of years. Have you ever thought how incredible it is that the message of the Bible can be believed and the gospel can be lived out in the most primitive and the most sophisticated cultures on earth in every age. Not only that, but God determined to make the most important parts of the Bible comprehensible to small children and uneducated adults and yet be able to withstand the most rigorous pounding of academic literary criticism. The Bible has taken and continues to take more critical cannon fire than any other book in history, and the ship just won't sink, John Bloom writes. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens, Psalm 1989, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it, Isaiah 55, 10 through 11. One of the tests of our right relationship to God is this. Does he speak to us in our hearts as we read and ponder the scriptures? If we don't hear him speaking to our hearts, perhaps we have some unfinished business to attend to that needs to be settled with him. Also, God does not move on when when his Holy Spirit has made clear to us what he desires for us to do and not to do, for that matter. He keeps going it over and over and over again until we finally get it, and he's amazingly patient in this endeavor. 
God knows what is best for every heir of mercy. One of the most beautiful aspects of the Christian faith is the element of forgiveness and renewal. When we fall, the enemy wants us to believe that our ministry is ended and that there's just no hope left for us, no recovery. But like we stated prior, our God is the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth. The Apostle John writes in 1 John 1, 8 through 10, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for your word and your truth. Help us to apply it to our lives that we may be a changed people and go forth in your power for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message by Beth from Sharing Bread Ministries. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way without the written permission from Sharing Bread. This content has been provided to you free of charge by the generous supporters of Sharing Bread. For additional information on Sharing Bread, you can look for us online at sharing-bread.com. You can find Bible teachings for adults and kids, links to podcasts and other resources to help you grow in the Lord. Again, that website is sharing-bread.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in touch with Sharing Bread. Sharing Bread, laboring to grow up families in Christ.